So we are uh, in a series that we've called, Where is God When? Uh, where we've been looking to see how God works in the difficult and challenging seasons of our life. And one of the, a really good way to see how God works is to see how God has worked in the past. Not that God always works exactly the same way every time, um, but we're able to get some different um, principles that we can apply to our lives when we look back and see how God has worked in the past. And we've chosen to do that through the lives of two prominent characters in the Old Testament. Um, we spent the first part of this series looking at the life of Elijah, who many consider to be um, one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament. And now we've been looking at the life of a man named David, who many consider to be the greatest king um, in the history of Israel. And we've been specifically looking at how God has been working and moving in the different challenges and difficulties in their lives. Every one of us faces hard seasons in life, and maybe you are in one of those seasons right now. And when we get into these hard and challenging seasons, sometimes it's hard to see that God is still with us. Our hope in this series has been to encourage all of us with the fact that God never abandons us. He's always with us. He's always working according to His good and perfect plan. And we know that God uses the hard and difficult seasons of our lives in order to shape us to become more like Jesus. And today's example is no different. Have you ever been treated bad by someone? Or let me ask it a little more specifically. Have you ever been treated bad by someone when you did really nothing to deserve it? Have you ever had someone who, for whatever reason, just didn't like you? Um, and they did everything to make your life difficult? This morning, we're going to explore the question, where is God when someone treats us poorly? Or maybe better stated, how does God work when we are treated poorly? And maybe the answer will surprise you. Last Sunday, Dustin introduced, introduced us to David. He was this young, insignificant shepherd who God chose to replace the current king, whose name was Saul. And Saul is a man who had basically forgotten who God was and what he had done. And so God had put, a plan, put in motion the fact that David would then be king. And David is described as a man after God's own heart, a, God, a man who loved God, who trusted God. But as we'll see next week, was far from perfect. And Dustin shared how God used David to defeat Goliath, this giant who the armies of Israel would, were fearful of, who Saul, the king himself, would not face, and how really this was a story that foreshadowed what Jesus would do for us by his death and resurrection, that, this, that by Jesus' death and resurrection, he defeated for us our two biggest enemies, sin and death. And you would think that David's victory over Goliath 
and the Philistine army would make Saul grateful for what David did. I mean, he ended this stalemate that Israel had against the Philistines. He allowed Saul to consolidate his control and to bring peace to the country. But instead, it does the opposite. Like, because of what David did in his defeat of Goliath, it like puts this target on David's back. In fact, when you read the, the, the chapters that follow the story of David and Goliath and leading into where we're going to be today, you see this picture unfold. And it starts with the fact that when the, the army of Israel is marching back home, all of the women and children have heard about this victory that David's had over Goliath. And they come out and they meet the army and they sing this song that's found in 1 Samuel 18 verse 7. It says, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. I'm not exactly what tune this went to, but that's the song they were singing. And, and Saul's response follows immediately. It says, and Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David 10,000, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. You see, Saul is filled with jealousy. Saul is filled with fear. And from this point on, Saul sets out to destroy David. Even though David has done nothing to deserve it. In fact, David is extremely loyal to Saul. When you read these chapters, you discover that Saul has some kind of a presence or some kind of a spirit that really disturbs him, keeps him up at night, makes him restless. And the only thing that seems to bring him peace is music. And David, on top of being a shepherd and a giant slayer also happens to play music as well. And so David is brought in to play music for Saul to calm him. But we read on three different occasions while David is playing music, Saul just randomly picks up a spear and toss, throw, hurls it at him, trying to pin him to the wall. Saul offers to give one of his daughters in marriage to David. And then sends David out on this extremely dangerous mission in order to prove his worth to marry his daughter. A mission that Saul hoped would kill David. But David is victorious and actually brings back twice the spoils that he was supposed to. Can you imagine how much that infuriated Saul? And then Saul hatches his final plan. He's going to invite David to this feast, this new moon feast, and at that feast he's going to kill David. But Saul's son, Jonathan, becomes really close friends with David and warns him not to come to the festival. <clears throat> of course, this makes Saul very, very angry, and David becomes a fugitive and spends the rest of his time fleeing Saul. So you can say Saul has treated David poorly. And this is where we pick up the story that we're going to look at this morning. It's found in 1 Samuel chapter 24, and the words will be on the screen. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of <coughs> Engedi. 
Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all of Israel and went to see, seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheep's fold, by the way, where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. I love how honest Scripture is. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave, and the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord has said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as you shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off the corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him, because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, and put my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words, and they did not, and he did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went his way. You see, Saul has been in pursuit of David and gets a tip that he's hiding out in this place called the Engedi. And the Engedi is about 3,500 acres in Israel that really is kind of an oasis in the middle of this desert landscape. It's got fresh springs, it's got vegetation, it has animals, so there's plenty of food and water for somebody who is on the run, a perfect place for David and his men to hide. And also, in this 3,500 acres are at least 100 caves, great places for people to hide who are trying to avoid being caught. So think about this. In this huge area, with all of these caves, what are the odds that Saul chooses the one cave that David and his men are hiding out in? And on top of that, you think about the circumstance of Saul going into this cave. I mean, Saul doesn't send his guards in ahead of himself to check it out to make sure it's safe for him to go in. You get the idea that Saul's need to relieve was urgent. And so this was a situation that Saul finds himself in. And David's men see this as his and their opportunity to finally put an end to this. Like, just kill Saul, remove him as king. David, you've already been anointed as king. Problem solved, we go on our ways. This must be God's plan to resolve this conflict between yourself and Saul. But David sees this opportunity, opportunity differently. He, he trusts God. He knows that God has chosen Saul as the king, and because God has chosen Saul as the king, it's also God's responsibility to remove Saul as king. This is not David's position. As we will see in the next section of Scripture, David sees this as God providing him an opportunity to mend this broken relationship with Saul. David knows this isn't coincidence or, or a chance encounter, but part of God's plan. So David cuts off a corner of Saul's robe so he can show to Saul how close he was able to come and the fact that he spared his life. But even when David does this, he's filled 
with a sense of regret because of the fact that that robe represented Saul's authority. What if God put Saul in this vulnerable place so that this relationship between he and David could heal? You see, I think that God can use the other person's vulnerability as an opportunity to initiate restoration. When someone hurts us or does something wrong to us or treats us poorly, what's generally our response? We want to get back at them. We want them to feel the way that we feel. We want to let them know how it feels to be treated poorly. Our hurt quickly turns to anger and our anger into a desire to get even or to make them pay for what they have done to us. Sometimes what we do is we will kill the relationship. We'll cut them off. No more contact or connection. And then later, perhaps, something happens to that person that puts them in a vulnerable place. Like, if you've ever had the experience where somebody has looked down on you out of their own sense of self-righteousness or moral superiority, and then all of a sudden you find out that something about them has come to light that shows that they aren't perfect either. Or, or maybe they've criticized you because of the way that you handle money and yet it comes to light that they're swimming in debt. Or, or maybe for you, it's your ex who left you for somebody else and now that person that they left you for has left them. And, and when we find <coughs> that that person who's hurt us in a vulnerable position, it's easy for us now to jump on the opportunity to get them back. Or, at least, maybe we think, you know, what goes around, comes around. But this isn't the way of Jesus. Jesus taught in Matthew 5, 39, he said, But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. In Matthew 5, 44, he says, But I say to you, love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you. Paul writes in one of his letters to the early church in Romans chapter 12, verses 17 and 18, he says this, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to, what, to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with those you like, those you get along with, those who can do kindness to you, live peaceably with all. Why? Because of what Jesus has done for us. This is the message of the gospel. While we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. While we were his enemies, he laid down his life for us so that we could experience life with God. When we were at our most vulnerable place, 
He initiated restoration for us. This is the example he set for those who follow him, and this is how we should live. Following the example of Jesus means looking for God to provide opportunities for us to initiate healing and restoration of a broken relationship. In fact, Jesus teaches us that we should be the ones to initiate. Consider these two passages, these two teachings of Jesus from Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. He says this, if your brother sins against you, go, you go, and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. And then he flips it. He says, Matthew 5, 23 and 24 says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, is, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. You go. First be reconciled with your brother and then come and offer your gift. Regardless of whether you've been wronged or you've wronged somebody else, we are the ones to go. Not just sit and stew and wait. So my first question is this. Who is it you have been, you have been wronged by or that you have wronged that you need to initiate restoration of a relationship with? Before we go on, I just want to make a side note about something that we read in this passage that I think is one of those verses that gets completely taken out of context. It's this idea of not touching the Lord's anointed. Maybe you grew up in a church or you've been part of, you've heard this as part of a church experience that, you know, those in church leadership are the Lord's anointed and nobody should touch them. Let me just tell you that is not the application for this. This is not true. In fact, those in church leadership should be accountable. In fact, they should be the most accountable. And so that is just a false teaching, a misapplication of what this passage is saying. Let's go on with the story. Verse 8. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks you harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you. As a proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness. <clears throat> but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After who do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be the judge and give sentence between me and you. 
and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. You know, David could have stayed hidden and just let Saul go on his way. He, he could have kept the corner of that robe just as kind of this trophy to show, you know what, I had this power, but I exercised restraint. I mean, David could have continued just to elude Saul. He never would have had to confront him or had any kind of conflict with Saul. But David chose a different path. Being a man after God's own heart, he chooses to initiate this reconciliation with Saul. I mean, just stepping out of the cave took courage and trust in God. But it's more important to note how David approaches Saul. Did you catch it? Did you catch what he did and what he said? First of all, he bows to Saul out of respect to him. And by bowing to Saul, he really puts himself in this very, very vulnerable place. He uses words like Lord and Father to address Saul. These are words of respect for him. He lets Saul know the decision that he made to spare his life was out of respect for his position and out of his loyalty to that position. He refers to himself as a dead dog or a flea. Like, compared to you, Saul, I am just nothing. I am insignificant. And here's the most important thing, I think, to note. David never mentions anything about how poorly Saul has treat him, treats him. He, he could have said, man, what's up with you and me and your spear? But he doesn't. David's approach with Saul is built on humility and vulnerability. I love the words of Proverbs 15.1. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Which leads us to the second principle. God can use our humility to bring about restoration. Remember, David hasn't done anything wrong. Of all the people who could have really blasted Saul and made a list of all the wrongs that have been done to him despite his loyalty, it's David. How we approach somebody, what we say, our posture toward them, it matters. So many times, especially when we've been hurt, we want to be confrontational. We want to list all the wrongs that have been done to us. We want the other person to know how much they've hurt us, how much hurt they've caused and how much damage they've done. But that's not what David does. He chooses to be vulnerable. He chooses to be humble. How are we able to choose humility over listing all the wrongs that somebody has done for us? It happens when our sense of worth and value isn't tied up in how we've been treated by others. We aren't defined by how they see us, and we're not defined by how they've treated us. Instead, as followers of Jesus, our sense of worth and value is found in the one who knows us best, and in spite of our flaws and our faults, he loves us most. We love a God who loved us first, who demonstrated his love for us by dying for us so that we can be freed from the consequences of our sin and be brought back to life now and forever. When we've experienced His love for us and we allow God's Spirit to work in our hearts, He begins to align us with His will. 
and desire. And our priority becomes the reconciliation of a relationship rather than the need to list all of the things that have been done wrong to us. We are able to put the one who has wronged us first to humble ourselves. And that's really hard to do with the person who has caused us hurt. We are able to forgive because we have been forgiven by God. We certainly did not deserve to be forgiven, and yet He has forgiven us much. God is working in us through His Spirit to restore and reconcile the relationships in our lives. Who, who is it that God is opening up an opportunity to be reconciled with through your humility? Would you commit to pray for this? Would you be willing to step out of your cave and initiate the healing of a broken relationship? Verse 16. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put you into, my, into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king. And that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me therefore by the Lord that you will not cut off my offspring after me. And that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. Saul really holds all of the cards here. He has the superior army. He is the king. And Saul is the one who's out for David. And I think the biggest surprise of this story is Saul's response. His repentance toward David even acknowledging the fact that he will become king, which leads me to the final thing that I think we see here, and that is that God can soften the hardest heart. While it is David's actions that Saul sees, it's really God who opens Saul's eyes and softens his heart. It's important to know that David started this process of reconciliation with Saul long before we get to the cave. David wrote a psalm while he was on the while he was on the run with, from Saul and it reveals why David was able to respond to Saul the way he did it psalm 63 and i'm going to read that for us listen to the words in the prayer of David he says this oh god you are my god earnestly i seek you my soul thirsts for you my flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live in your name. I will lift up my hands. 
My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich foods. By my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for the jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of the liars will be stopped. This has been David's ongoing prayer. All this time on the run, he has been praying to and leaning on God. David's focus, David's hope, his satisfaction, his strength, all come from putting his faith and trust in God. He has placed all of this into God's hands, knowing that God will work all of this out, even though his life is on the line. Most of the time when someone treats us poorly, we obsess over it. It robs us of our joy, it robs us of our peace, it robs us of our sleep because it causes us to worry. What if we simply turned all of it over to God? After all, he is the one that's in control, right? Jesus puts it this way in Matthew 6.33. He says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all of these things will be added to you. And Jesus is talking about this in the context of worry. Part of seeking God's kingdom and righteousness means placing our hope and our confidence in God, who he is and what he has done for us, knowing that we can trust him. And because we trust him, we are then able to turn all of our hurts and all of the wrongs done to us over to him, knowing that he is good, that he is in control and that he loves us and that he really is all we need. We can also trust that in his perfect timing, he will work and move us toward healing in our broken relationships. Again, in His way and in His timing. Here, here's a suggestion. If someone has treated you poorly, or maybe even God is providing an opportunity to pursue reconciliation of a relationship where you've experienced hurt, Read Psalm 63 and meditate on it before you have a conversation or each time as that hurt begins to occupy your mind. Let the words of David soak into your heart and your mind and let the assurance of a very big God who loves you and is in control take the place of your desire to lash out, to get back, to list the wrongs, to continue to hold the hurt. In. One final comment. Sometimes the one who is treated as poorly doesn't want to be reconciled. It does, it does take both people agreeing to be reconciled with one another. But just a reminder of that scripture that we read that Paul wrote. It says, as far as as much as it depends on you, 
live at peace. Even if the other person is not willing to live at peace with you, you can live at peace with them. So rather than seeking to be made whole by the other person, let God be the one who brings you wholeness. Let God work as only He can to restore what has been broken. Trust Him because He is good. We're going to end this message with a a prayer, but I want to share, we're going to pray a little differently this morning than we usually do. As Kyle shared, we had a group of uh, 12 of us that were able to go to Kenny. I was blessed to be a part of that team. And I can't tell you how hard it is not to just like only talk about Kenya this morning. It was that impactful. I discovered that I was far more blessed than anything that I was able to bring. That truly, we left a piece of us in Kenya and we brought a piece of Kenya home with us. And I'm excited to share about all the things. But one of the things I want to do this morning is bring a piece of Kenya here this morning. We had the privilege of working with school-aged children in, the, in Korogotranayo, which is a very, very impoverished community, poverty that you can't even, like, fathom. And um, one of the things that we learned from the littlest ones in this group was this great love and appreciation for who God is. And they did this at the end of their prayers, and it was just amazing and incredible. We started to do this as a team. And so I'm bringing this back to South Point. So what they would do, rather than saying amen, which is a ridiculous thing in some ways to say there in prayer, like, what does that even mean? What they do is they just clap their hands three times. They say, wow. This is their expression of their awe of who God is. I think it's really cool. So we're going to practice that right now because I know some of you, like me, are rhythmically challenged. And so we're going to do a little bit of a one, two, three. Ready? Ready? One, two, three. Wow. Oh, we can do better than that. Ready? One, two, three. Wow. So I'm going to pray, and rather than saying amen, we're just going to do one, two, three, wow. Okay, here we go. Father, thank you so much for all that you have done. Father, thank you for the fact that you are a God who has reconciled us back to you. You are a God who allows us this ability to reconcile relationships that have been broken. Sometimes they've been broken by us. Sometimes they've been broken by the wrongs done to us. And Father, I pray for each one of us that even in, in, in this moment, Father, you're recalling to us names of people that we, that you're moving in their lives, you're moving in our lives to be able to, to bring healing and restoration. So Father, I pray that you would go out before us and that you would bring the healing that only you can, that we trust you and we love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Ready? Wow.